Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about the reasons why the stock market doesn't reflect economic realities in the US at the minute. Nikola Motors, the $25 billion electric car company with no revenue, and the reasons why bankrupt companies like Hertz are jumping more than 800%. So guys, recently we've received a lot of questions in from listeners asking us about the current state of the market. Rory, I think you've said before that the stock market likes certainty, but I think it's fair to say that this year has been anything but certain. We've seen a global lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic an unemployment rate of as much as 16% reported in the US in May, not to mention widespread civil unrest over the past few weeks across dozens of US cities and the ever-looming threat of a second wave of coronavirus infections. Despite all of this uncertainty, the Nasdaq hit all-time highs this week, crossing the 10,000-point mark for the first time ever, while both the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 aren't far off their all-time highs either. Uh, Rory, how do we explain this massive discrepancy between the trajectory of the stock market over the last few weeks and the realities on the ground for many people in the US? Yeah, well, look, you said it, you know, you think about what's actually going on at the moment in the United States or I mean, around the world, particularly in the United States, you know, nearly at one point you had 40 million people were losing their jobs uh, in the space yeah. of just a couple of weeks. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses have to shut. Many of them will probably never reopen. And now, if you turn on the news in any country in the world, you're seeing mass public protests in the United States over the killing of George Floyd, with you know even some bad actors hijacking those for for looting businesses. So, it's, I can understand why it's difficult for people to understand how the market is where it's at with all this going on. Yeah. And of course, you know we still don't have a vaccine. COVID nineteen is not over yet. There's could well be a second wave. In fact, there probably will be in some states in the US or they're already seeing signs of them. And I think, yeah, you know, I, I, I read a tweet where someone said, either the stock market was undervalued before COVID-19 or it's overvalued now. And I think that's a lot of the time how people think about these things, but it's just, that's not really how the stock market actually works. The stock market is all about sentiment. It's about how positive or negative people are, are feeling about the future. I mean, that's, in the short term, which is what we're definitely dealing with at the moment, you know, in the long term, companies rise based on performance and based on earnings. But in the short term, the market fluctuates, sometimes quite uh, violently, based on people's just perceptions of, of where they're going to be in the next couple of months. You know, in October 1987, when the stock market dropped 50%, those companies didn't become 50% less valuable in terms of like what they were actually the companies themselves. It was the sentiment surrounding the value of those companies that that fell. And, yeah. you know, the, you have to look at the positives as well. You know, you think about the most highly weighted stocks in the S&P 500 at the moment. It's your Amazons, it's your Microsofts, your Googles, your Facebooks. All these companies are probably going to benefit from the, this crisis over the long run. So why shouldn't they be hitting all-time highs and why shouldn't they be driving the index higher? So, and, and you know, there's, there's short-term signs of a faster recovery, you know, even – 
Just last week, they saw record numbers of job gains in the US, 2.5 million new jobs created in the space of a week. Uh, airlines are looking like they're going to open up faster again. So you're balancing what is kind of the the cautiousness of a second wave, long-term unemployment, a recession with the positives that are out there. And at the same time, you kind of think like an awful lot of people have more money in their pocket today than they did three months ago. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just a fact of life. Lots of people, their jobs were pretty much unaffected by this. They went home, they worked from home. They haven't been able to spend as much because the usual places that you spend money are closed to them. And there was stimulus checks sent out to people in the mail. So an awful lot of people have more money than they had beforehand. And some people are putting that into the market. I think we're going to talk about the Robinhood trading a bit further on in the podcast. But there's so many, there's so many different factors affecting the market right now. It's, it's not, you can't simply look at it as a, well, the stock market should be lower today than it was three months ago because we've been through all this. How important do you think, Rory, it was that the recent sell-off we experienced was an event-driven sell-off rather than, you know, if you if you take 2008, 2009 as an example, that was kind of a systematic failure rather than this big massive event which shut the world down. Is the kind of the thing that drives a sell-off important in how it recovers? Well, 100%, of course it is. That's, that is the major difference between this sell-off and what we saw in 2008, which was, as you said, a complete breakdown of the systems that were supposed to be in place to protect people from the next Great Depression. And, you know, that's why, I mean, I was speaking to a webinar the other day and people were asking all sorts of questions about a recession. And you've got to remember, like, a lot of the fear revolving around recessions is that the last one we experienced was so awful. It was like yeah. one of the, like, the worst in history. And people, and it took so long for us to recover from it. And it's probably the the thing that most young investors, the first thing that comes into their head when they think about a recession is that, you know, the great financial crisis of two thousand and eight. Whereas most recessions are far milder than that, are far shorter than that. They happen on average about five to ten, once every five to ten years, and they last roughly around eighteen months. So, you know, recessions aren't necessarily something to be totally freaked out about. For young investors in particular, it's a good opportunity to buy stocks at a low rather than at all-time highs, which we've seen consistent all-time new all-time highs be set over the past 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of our listeners, Killian, um, wrote in after the last podcast and asked, do we think that the market might be in a coronavirus bubble? Um, so what he was wondering, I suppose, was buoyed by the success of kind of stocks that benefited from the lockdown, like Amazon and Shopify, those e-commerce stocks. Do you think that we're still in a kind of a, a bubble riding out of the, the recent sell-off? Yeah, I think so. If if a vaccine ar- arrived on our doorsteps tomorrow, um I think a lot of the businesses that have benefited from coronavirus ha- will fall back, but not back to where they were because their businesses have fundamentally improved and changed the way we all behave. There yeah. are people who today have at long last realized that shopping via Amazon exclusively is way easier. There are people who realize taking the the drive to work five days a week doesn't make sense. And the companies themselves have realized it. So things will revert for sure to a point. So I don't think they're, they're you know, it, it's a bubble or a coronavirus bubble per se. But I do think that um, when eventually normality, whatever that is, returns, it won't be the way things were in middle week of January 2020. 
Absolutely. Often, often when my uh, I tell my partner about a stock getting a big increase over the course of a few weeks, she'll say something like, "It looks like a bubble." Like if it, you can't see a bubble, that's why it's called a bubble. If you looks like, <laughs> so yeah, it, that's the whole point of a bubble. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like you know, we don't know. It's and also there was yeah. a great quote. Someone quoted George Soros yesterday, who said that whenever he sees a bubble, he rushes in. You know, sometimes you have to get on board with these things. Yeah, that's true. If if that's the way the market's going, um, moving down to kind of individual companies, then so Tesla stock closed at an all time high this week thanks to reports of increased demand for the Model Three car in China. Um, the success of Tesla, though, recently has been kind of overshadowed by the new kid on the block, Nikola Motors. Um, claiming the first name of the famous inventor, Nikola began trading on the Nasdaq on June 4th after a reverse merger with Vector IQ and has since more than doubled in value. It's currently valued at around the same as Ford, despite having never produced a vehicle. Um, Rory, I know you've been kind of keeping a close eye on Nikola recently. Um, what's your thoughts on this company? My first thoughts is I wish he had a middle name. Because, <laughs> you know, name anything after this guy and people just go crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. As you said, this is a company It went public on June 4th, a reverse merger, similar to what we saw with uh, Virgin Galactic and DraftKings. Um, it's a company that specializes in battery electric and hydrogen electric trucks for the most part. That's their kind of... Uh, their niche in the market, they're going after the kind of the, the big semis that you see driving across the American highways. And yeah, the shares were doubled on Monday, which in one point meant it was worth more than Ford. Ford, by the way, had revenue of about 150 billion last year. Um, Nikola has revenue of zero dollars. <laughs> um, like, I mean, I think we're all well past the point of comparing companies like Tesla to the kind of more old school players like Ford and General Motors. I think we're kind of yeah. We've gotten to the point of realizing that, yes, they do have something a little bit different to offer and that, you know, they can expand into more of a technology space than simply being an automotive uh, play. But this jump in share price is is quite, it does seem quite manic. And it, it was it was largely down to an announcement by the company that they're going to start taking reservation orders for their Badger truck, which is kind of a direct competitor to Tesla Cybertruck. Um, it's a pretty cool looking it. truck. Yeah, it's definitely on the more conservative design side than the than the Cybertruck. Um, and they, they claim that they have about $10 billion in pre-order revenue. But of course, we know that is pretty much meaningless. That's very much dependent on whether they can actually get these cars built, which, we, we again, we don't know. And it's just part of a kind of a larger buy-in to anything to do with kind of green energy. There's a couple of hydrogen fuel cell makers like Plug Power and Bloom Energy are also seeing some big stock pops at the moment as investors rush into greener fuel alternatives. So look, it's a it's a, definitely a manic symbol in the market right now that a company with zero yeah. revenue is being valued at $33 billion. And I would avoid anyone listening to avoid it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd go so far, I'm going to make a bold claim, and that is that I think the Nikola or Nikola trucks are the we work of transportation. I think it's phony. <laughs> wow, and, that's a big you know, statement. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you why. And I, of course, you know, I may prove it may prove that I'm absolutely wrong. But for a Tesla semi, you need to drop a twenty thousand dollar deposit, whereas with a Nikola, it's zero. So that means a lot of pre-orders will come in 
just to hold your place in line. So yeah. apparently Anheuser-Busch has reserved up to 800 trucks. Um, and even in an interview I was listening to recently, the, the, the founding CEO, Trevor Milton, said that very few people can out Elon uh, Elon Musk, but I'm one of them, he said. Okay. And, um, that's <laughs> Alarm a, bells that ringing is, there. That's, that's bold. And then he was brought out onto stage by Anheuser's uh, Clydesdale horses for an unveil. And uh, he, he said in an interview that they're burning $200 million a month, which sounds preposterously low. I think he, he got his numbers wrong on that. Um, you know, I think they, they've, in their perspectives, they've spent something like 500 to 800 million dollars so far. So I don't believe they've 2 million a month burn right now. If we forgive the guy and just say that was just a numerical slip up, um, I still think that uh, that this is WeWorkish. Now, uh, I don't doubt that we will see these trucks on the road eventually, as of course we saw WeWork offices uh, appear everywhere. But I just think its valuation is crazy. I think as well, we've got to have a bit more skepticism about these reverse merger deals that are coming out. They're getting a lot more popular at the moment, and it does kind of leave investors open with, to a bit of a, hold on, there's a new company and it's going up really fast. Maybe I should get into it. You know, the, it doesn't get give you the same kind of long drawn out uh, prospectus inquiry that you get from an IPO. Not saying that that's the perfect way of doing things either, but maybe there's somewhere in the, there's a kind of middle ground between those two because just to have a company suddenly appear on the stock market with you know and people are kind of shocked they're like oh, i didn't even know uh draft kings was a public company because it happened so quickly and um, i think you know maybe there's you just need to kind of take a step back with those things and be like right what's going on here why is this company suddenly floating their shares like this that was a question I actually wanted to ask, Gory. Do you think this kind of reverse merger, it's becoming the preferred option of flotation for these kind of speculative companies? I'm thinking of Virgin Galactic as well, which, you know, aren't making a lot of revenue, but suddenly float on the market and, and suddenly get these huge valuations. Well, I mean, there's I don't have any kind of, um, what do you say, like moral uh, viewpoint against them. If, you know, everyone yeah. should be aware of what they're buying when they're buying it, regardless of how a company went to market on it. And IPOs are, you know, are complete sales cycles, as we've discussed many times. You know, that's that's an entire boiler room of people telling you to buy a stock for months on end before you that big day when it finally appears on the on the stock market. So, you know, it's it all comes down to personal investors and and being like, don't rush in to buy something just because it's new, just because it's flashy. Do your due diligence. Make sure you understand the business and make sure, and again, always make sure you're going to buy it with the view of holding it for an awful long time. We tell people to avoid stocks when they recently IPO because we think there's an awful lot of hype floating around them for a couple of months after that. We've got a kind of personal, um, a personal limit on when we add companies to the stock, which is kind of two, two quarters, essentially. Yeah. I think that's a good time to see whether a business is going to, how a business is going to kind of exist within the confines of the public markets and yeah. you know you may end up missing out on a couple of percentage points uh by waiting that extra time but in the long run it's you know if you're if you're investing in a company hoping that it's going to be a massive big winner for you a couple of percentage points is not going to make a huge difference absolutely mm -hmm. couldn't agree so more. moving on 
moving on then we've already spoken about how the market isn't exactly reflecting economic reality at the minute but another seemingly illogical thing we've seen is the share price of some struggling companies rally as investors flood in the best example of this is probably hertz which saw its stock lose more than 95 percent of its value between february and march after the company filed for bankruptcy protection however since those lows at the end of may hertz stock has jumped more than 880 percent at one point um rory what do you think is going on here with hertz well yeah it's not just hertz it's you know bizarrely and i can't believe i'm saying the sentence but the best performing stocks over the last couple of weeks have been companies that have either filed for or have suggested they're filing for bankrupts um <laughs> hertz is the most well-known example uh you know this is a company that has 19 billion dollars in debt uh, and holds about 700,000 vehicles that at the moment it can't use um and yet the stock has popped several times over the past couple of days. At one point, I think it was up something like a thousand percent from its lows. Wow. Uh, I mean, like, look, we've already talked about the, the creeping good news that's making everyone a bit optimistic. You know, the jobs report, the airlines coming back. Hertz is obviously very much tied to airlines. And, and you know, there was some speculation that, uh, you know, $15 billion of the company's debt is tied to their fleet, which maybe they'll be able to get more cash from and have a liquidation. But like, if you understand anything about Chapter 11 bankruptcy, you understand this is awful for shareholders nearly every which way it comes. In Chapter 11, shareholders are at the very, very bottom of the ladder when it comes to getting your money in a liquidation scenario. They have to okay. pay back all the secured debt, all the non-secured debt, before they can give anything back to the common shareholder. And I think an awful, there's an awful lot of misinformation out there. Things like you know, people saying, oh, well, General Motors went bankrupt back in 2009 and, and now this, they're a $42 billion company. And it's true. A, a small handful of bankrupt companies maintain some level of equity value for investors, but the majority of them ultimately go to zero and the stock has to be delisted and it has to go back onto the market at a, at a time in the future under a different ticker or perhaps under under the same ticker. But the original equity holders get zero. There's no, okay. you're not going to get money back after a stock's delisted like that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and you look at someone like Carl Icahn, who's been probably Hertz's biggest champion over the years, was the company's largest shareholder. He sold every single one of his shares at 72 cents, um, booking a $1.5 billion loss. And now the stock's trading at $4. It's just, and, and the New York Stock Exchange has just uh, sent them a letter saying you're going to be delisted. So, you know, there's insane uh, mania going on in the market right now. A lot of it's being contributed to this, this kind of uh, Robin Hood shareholder that's going in making very speculative bets. I even saw a big piece in CNBC the other day, which was praising a bunch of these anecdotal cases of people who'd made, you know, 24 extra returns in a week by buying puts on bankrupt companies. And you have to be very careful. That's promoting a very bad form of investing. It's and yeah, it's heavily weighted in survivorship bias. You're not going to get interviews with, you know, Alan who lost his entire savings by betting on something. It's only the people who are going to have done well, who have made serious amounts of money that are going to be on CNBC or be interviewed by CNBC to talk about how great they've done. Uh, so, you know, and in times of volatility like this, there's plenty of ways to make money and plenty of ways to make a fast buck when stocks are shooting up and down at these kind of levels. But it's not investing. It's it's, yeah. it's it's casino gambling. Just as long as so, if you're going to do it, do it. But just be aware of that you're rolling a dice, and far more people lose than win. 
Absolutely. Um, so then a company that should have benefited from the recent lockdown orders is Stitch Fix. However, sales at the clothing subscription service actually fell 9% in the last quarter due to supply chain issues. The company also recently laid off uh, 1,400 workers, representing almost 20% of its workforce in an effort to reduce costs. And um, Stitch Fix is a selection in the My Wall Street shortlist. What's your view on the company as of late? Yeah, well, James, as I just remind our listeners what Stitch Fix actually does. The company uses sophisticated algorithms and human stylists to choose which items to send you in a regular shipment, which yeah. they call a fix. And it's based on input from the client and their past purchasing behavior. But in simple terms, Stitch Fix sends you a box of clothes and you keep the bits you want and um, send back what you don't want. And as you rightfully said, it started this week, they reported quarterly sales decreased 9% year over year, um, which is really unimpressive when you consider that we're, you know, all at home in our panic rooms away from the nasty bugs and germs with no new threads and no new chance of getting any new threads. And like, who doesn't want to look stylish on the couch? So on the whole, (laughs) you know, I was kind of I was kind of taken aback that in a world that suddenly went looking for um, you know things to buy via the web you know that that stitch fix didn't enjoy that as a as a benefit to their business um the number of active clients increased by nine percent in the quarter and operating losses were 46 million dollars compared to 4.6 million dollars in the year ago period so wow. their operating losses went up tenfold um and in a letter to shareholders, uh, Katrina Lake and the company, the founder Katrina Lake, has said that the fulfillment constraints hampered sales throughout the quarter, you know, and that they believe they would have grown revenue year over year. So that might imply that things are going to look better for their fiscal Q4, uh, where they expect to return to growth. And as you said, they're laying off 1,400 people, actually 1,400 stylists in California. Okay. and hiring stylists in lower cost markets. And I just presume a stylist in California has a higher salary than, you know, in, in, a, in a cheaper market. So they're looking to, but when I looked at their strategy, when I look at Stitch Fix now, they're saying they're going to bolster sales by letting anyone, regardless of whether they get fixes or not, shop as they would on a traditional e-commerce site. And they said they test launched this in February and it enables clients to buy items a la carte separately from fixes through a service that they call direct buy. So this innovation sounds really familiar. It's called shopping on the internet. <laughs> online and, shopping. You know, <laughs> online shopping, exactly. So I was a little bit unimpressed at that because, you know, their thing is they send you a box of gear, as you call clothing over here in Dublin. They send you a box of clothing every uh, at frequencies. I think it's once a month and you keep the pieces you like. But now all of a sudden, it's the place you go to buy a shirt when you need a shirt. And I don't like that. I I think the fundamentals of this business have kind of deteriorated and yet the stock is high flying to our, our listeners question about a, a coronavirus bubble, perhaps. But um, I don't like it and I'm unimpressed and I don't think that Stitch Fix uh, said anything in its most recent call that made me feel, oh, now we're looking at a bargain. Now, sure, growth might resume. And of course, there are reasons. There's always reasons. But yeah. um, I thought this was their golden moment to to speak to those people who are stuck at home, um, but still wanted to, to fashion themselves up a bit. 
Cool. Um, so before we move on, move on to Jargon Busters then, I just want to take a quick look at some of the other things happening in my Wall Street at the moment. Um, so far this month, we've already published June's Stock of the Month report and the Stock of the Month podcast. You can listen to both of these in the My Wall Street app right now, exclusive for subscribers. Um, this month's Stock of the Month pick is already up close to 10% in less than two weeks, contributing to a performance that has seen our Stock of the Month selections return an average of more than 92% over the past three and a half years. Of course, there are plenty of other great things to check out my wall street at the moment too including our daily articles and our news updates from the market if you're not already a member of my wall street you can sign up now and get a free trial where you can access all of this stuff by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show uh jargon busters um rory i think i'm going to come to you first uh this question when considering an investment do you ever take the different tax rates between etfs and share purchases into consideration or do you just focus on the investment itself that came in from john uh, through twitter uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and presume that John is from Ireland. I think um, so, yeah. Because in most countries, there is no difference between ETFs and, and stocks. Whereas in Ireland, the rules regarding ETFs are about as long as a Leonard Cohen song. Um, <laughs> it's incredibly convoluted and very hard to understand. Even like I have a QFA, I still have trouble getting my head around the tax, tax implications of ETF ownership, ownership in Ireland. So yeah, just to, to put a disclaimer on that, that this is a very Irish unique problem. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is something you should definitely consider. Of course, the, you know, the, ta- the taxes you're going to pay on your capital gains and on your dividends do make a big difference when it comes to the time when you're going to sell. And in Ireland, there's even more different rules where you're forced to pay it every eight years, which again, Sorry to all our American listeners that you have to listen to this nonsense, but this is the kind of thing we have to deal with here. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I'm not going to dig too deep into it in terms of getting into specifics, but, yeah, it's it, you, you do need to take it into consideration. And, you know, in, at the very least, if you're worried about it, consult a professional to find out what the best option for you is, because a lot of the times ETFs are domiciled in different countries and each of those has different tax implications as well. So, yeah, it's definitely something to, there's definitely something to look in, into. And typically, if you can find one with the least tax liabilities, that's usually the one to go for. Okay, cool. Helpful. Thanks, Rory. Um, Evan, I'm going to throw this next one over to you. And it comes from Dave uh, through email. He asks, how much cash should you typically keep in reserve in your portfolio account? Is 10% the standard amount? When I look at the average cash that I've held in my account for my online account for 22 years from when I started with Daytech way back when in 98, I've only ever been 5% in cash. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but my mentality at a personal level is, well, if I'm sending money over, it's there to invest and I'm keeping a small amount back if things drop. Um, So 10% sounds good, sounds right to me. I certainly doesn't strike me as the incorrect answer. There is no absolutely correct answer. I read an interview several years ago with a guy who had an unbelievable and outlandish compounded annual growth rate it was like 24% and he was always 20% in cash, which wow. was like, it was akin to magic. I mean, it was that good. So so really, you there, there's no right or wrong answer. But the, the way I look at it is that, you know, if you have 5 or 10% cash in your portfolio, it's nice to have line of sight to cash outside of your portfolio should you need it. So if there was the greatest of sell-offs ever known to humankind next week. 
5% cash is going to feel like you just don't have enough. So if you're in that fortunate part of the world where you can actually see availability of cash outside of your folio that you can run to if you need it, well, that's kind of good too. Um, but I think 10% sounds absolutely fine. And um, adding cash regularly is the key to successful investing. And uh, once once Dave is adding cash to the stocks he most prefers on a frequent basis and perhaps keeping 10% banked on the side in cash all the time, I think that's a very mature and uh, appropriate way to approach building your portfolio. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's an interesting question because I think people often forget that not to sound too much like Warren Buffett there, but cash is a bad investment. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm just very thankful just because I couldn't, you know, I never really had the great patience to wait for this stock I really like to fall. I'd buy it because also my memory, it's like, I like this business now. I know why I like it now. I'm going to buy it now. <laughs> and, you know, then I can forget about it. And then someday if I see it 20% in the red, well, then I have a new decision. Do I buy more or do I just leave it? So there's something about like you take an action when you've got the impetus and you've got the, uh, the, the I suppose, the aggregated knowledge. And I think that that's the best way to go about it. Absolutely. So that was Jargon Busters. If you have any questions you'd like to send in for next time's uh, Jargon Busters, make sure to get in touch with us. You can email us at pod at mywallstreet.com or just shoot us a message on Twitter. Let's move on to the elevator pitches now. So considering that we're now in June and almost halfway through the year, believe it or not, um, I thought we'd revisit some of the big predictions both of you guys made for 2020 back in December and see how they're getting on. Um, Rory, I'm going to come to you first. I kind of feel a bit unfair maybe bringing this up now. So you predicted that Beyond Meat stock would be cut in half this year. Um, the time you made that prediction, Beyond was trading about 75 bucks a share. Um, and it's just recently had a bit of a spike where it's now hovering around 155 bucks a share. Um, do you want to comment on that or will we just move on quickly? You're loving this, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to preface this by saying that when I made that prediction, I, that was coming off a previous prediction that the stock was going to be cut in half, which it was. Yeah. And then I said it was going to be cut in half again. So it's, it's only brought kind of back to where I originally was talking about it. And um, yeah, look, so far, six months in, my prediction is not working out. Yeah. Uh, I will say that, do you know, like, the thing about Beyond is, and this is what's kind of annoying, is that I actually quite like the company. I think they're a really good company. I think they've got a really good brand. Um, I think they were, you know, quick off the mark when this whole thing started gaining traction and they've done very well. They've obviously penetrated an awful lot of markets with their partnerships with the various quick service restaurants. And the fact yeah. that the quick service restaurants are using their branding uh, is, is very positive as well. It shows that it's a really strong brand. And look, things have there's other things that have been going well for them. They've they've um, entered China with a brand new partnership deal just announced a couple of weeks ago. They've kicked off with KFC. They've got a new partnership with Starbucks. So there's an awful lot of positive news, news that you would expect the to drive a stock up in value. But I mean, I still look at this company and go, it can't be worth ten billion dollars. It just can't yeah. be. It's like if you look if you were to look at any other uh food company, packaged food company in the world, the likes of Tyson, Conagra, Kellogg's, those kind of businesses, they're generating, you know, billions and billions of dollars every year and are, are getting absolutely like nowhere near the kind of multiples that Beyond Meat is getting. And I understand that Beyond Meat is a smaller company and those companies are old juggernauts without the, the same growth potential. 
but all those companies are getting into this space and are going to release their own versions of Beyond Meat products, possibly even better versions of the Beyond Meat product. They're going to have much more marketing spend, much more promotional spend. They've got the relationship with distributors. And I think people are totally underestimating the competitive environment that Beyond Meat is going to find itself in within a year or two. And I also think they're going to see lagging sales due to this coronavirus panic as well. So I've been wrong so far. I could be wrong again. Uh, but my my view on the business, this is a great business, but it's, it's really overvalued. Yeah, I think... You know, it's it's that kind of idea that a lot of people are are on board with this kind of meatless revolution, for want of a better term. But and beyond meat seems to a lot of people be the only avenue to invest in it. Whereas obviously it's going to become a much wider field as time progresses. Yeah, I mean, look, I do, I do not think beyond meat would their stock would be successful if there was four or five plant based meat companies that were on the public markets today. It's because it's yeah. the only name out there at the moment that it's that I think it sees such pro, uh, massive price appreciation. The stock is trading at the moment at something like 25 times price to sales. Like you look at any other package foods company, they barely get one times price to sales. Okay. So I promise I won't bring it up again until December. (laughs) (laughs) Emmett, over to your prediction. So you predicted that 2020 would be a catastrophic year for big retail brands. Um, I don't know if if that was a prediction of the coronavirus lockdown or not, but uh, I can see you dusting your shoulders off there. Yeah, I mean, I don't uh, revel in misery, but 25,000 stores are predicted to close in 2020. Um, and it really is as a result of the coronavirus accelerating an upheaval of the whole industry. So, um, you know, we, we, we may just a month or so ago, JCPenney filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, um, closing 242 stores, you know, big brands, big names that we know are shuttering and it's regrettable it's horrible it's actually very sad there's a loss of jobs and and yeah. points for communities but cnbc ran a headline story this morning that you know twenty five thousand stores are predicted to close you know in the 12 months so that's huge um and i think therefore uh, i can claim a victory on that call yeah absolutely um i think you you made a good point there as well in that you know the, the coronavirus and the subsequent lockdowns just kind of quickened the trajectory of the direction this is already going in. Oh, it did. Absolutely. You just everyone listening knows they've augmented the way they go about living their life. Uh, and that that change has come through digitalization, through the web enablement of purchases and and, you know, going into a shop is something that I think or into a big store is something most of us if we've done it since the coronavirus outbreak have felt somewhat nervous about you know the yeah. uh, the the collective intelligence is that you're less likely to, likely to contract the illness if you're outdoors when you go inside in a enclosed space with others you know you've reason to be fearful and and um that that's still there as Roy said earlier on coronavirus is not over and unfortunately for these retailers and i think most especially i feel very sorry for the mom and pop stores like i genuinely look at businesses that are one-off units are a couple of multiples and i i see them closed and i know that behind that on is an entrepreneur yeah, a woman absolutely. or a man or a couple who've put their heart and soul into this and and it's now kind of it's gathering dust i think it's terrible um and a lot of us are are going to keep our habits now on digital and then eventually we'll pass but unfortunately yeah it's 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 come to pass absolutely i saw uh, um, a data point that 
percentage of people online shopping or, or the percentage of, of shopping that's done online has increased in the last three months more than it had done in the previous 14 years. Wow, uh, wow. Which is just unbelievable when you think about that move from brick and mortar to digital. And, you know, those those customers aren't going away. They're stay, they're going to stay digital. Once you're up and running, it's very hard to uh, to stop. Absolutely. So that's it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff I've mentioned in My Wall Street at the moment. And if there's anything you do want us to explain or discuss on the next episode of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch. You can catch us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. From all of us here today, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>